0: Direct contracting, on its own, and with its cousin, reference-based pricing, has been controversial and misunderstood. What are the challenges? How can you overcome them? And what are the benefits? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers.
1: Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change you want to see. This episode is brought to you by Shift Shaper Strategies. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. Clarify your message so you win more clients, crush your sales goals, and build your practice. Learn more at shiftshaperstrategies.com. And now, here's your host, StoryBrand Certified Guide and Chief Transformation Strategist at Shift Shaper Strategies, David Saltzman.
0: You know, there's been an awful lot of talk about direct contracting, and it's kind of a cousin of reference-based pricing, I guess, in a way. They They do kind of go together somewhat. And we were looking for somebody who could talk to us about both knowledgeably. And we went back to an old friend of ours, T.J. Morrison, who's president at Benefit Design Specialist. T.J. was last on the program back in July 2018, and a lot of things have changed. And so we asked him if he would give us kind of an update and have a discussion about how those things go together and what you need to be looking for and what's changed in the marketplace in almost three years. So with that, welcome, T.J., Yeah. Thank you,
2: David. I appreciate you having me back on.
0: Well, it's our pleasure. So let's level set. What is direct contracting and why does it matter?
2: Yeah, so great question, and probably a good kickoff for even people that, that might not be familiar with it today. It is growing. I think we kind of caught maybe the front end of the wave of it. And I was just fortunate because a local surgery center in our backyard out of central PA wanted to do this about five years ago. So the concept of direct contracting is, you know, we can all agree there's a lot of different pieces in healthcare that's broken. And, you know, like a lot of things in life, if you go back to the basics, you can maybe recreate the right way or the right way of going about things. So, with direct contracting, you're essentially working directly with, you know, mainly uh, a lot of what we do is direct with ambulatory surgical centers and regional hospitals. And so, you're going direct to those providers and you're doing deals with them on various different procedures. You know, usually direct contracting, when you look at the procedures you cover, you're talking about colonoscopies, major imaging, orthopedics, general surgery things that are what we classify as maybe clean cases. They're really easy for the provider to bundle. They know what the facility charge, physician, anesthesia, DME, hardware, what that encompasses. So at the end of the day, what you're doing is working with these outpatient surgery centers or regional hospitals and saying, hey, we want to work direct. We want to work direct with you. If our employees come through you for services, we have agreed upon bundled pricing. And we'll pay you, you know, and a lot with direct contracting, while it's appealing for providers is, is the fast payment. Many times these providers through health plans are waiting a month to three months to get paid for services, where the typical direct contracting contracts, they're looking for seven to 10 business day turnaround. So get the patient in, have a procedure they were going to have anyway at a drastically reduced price and pay the provider quickly.
0: So they have no carrying charges. They don't have to go pay and chase and, and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely, so this is not something that at least in some cases completely replaces an existing network. This is something that works alongside almost as though it were a center of excellence and a cost saving opportunity
2: absolutely david and i think I think this is a really important piece of the conversation today too is you know if you look back five and a half years ago and and I'm just answering to for where we kind of got started in this space, you know it would have been taboo to talk to the BUCAs about it back then. You know, you just, you just felt there was too much of a rub. And we've seen that change drastically to the point that we, we have great BUCA relationships and they see value in what we're doing because direct contracting is attacking a niche that a network can But at the same time, we're not trying to be in competition with any type of network. And really direct contracting, the best way to think of it is like the travelocity of insurance. You know, you have your networks and their long term contracts and it's got to cover everything under the sun where we're looking to just simply place a patient that has a need right at that time and fill beds. You know, drive business to the provider that they did not have before, or take business from the large hospital monopolies in the area and drive it to the outpatient centers that are that are fighting in those markets. So, in that, you know, I use the the great analogy. One of our great Buka partners that we work with and we integrate with, when we first started conversations, she, uh, the vice president of the company, she came right at me. She said, "All right, TJ, tell me how you provide value, but you don't devalue our network." And I, I kind of laughed and said, I guess we're going to address the elephant in the room to start this conversation. I said, listen, a network is at the table eating a 72-ounce steak. I'm the crumb on the ground that the mouse overlooked. So it's a niche market that it blends well with a lot of different employer situations. So if you're, you are with a Buka, that's great. And we, you know that, that's a great situation and it works for your plan. We can integrate direct contracting alongside that if you're doing RBP that's great. You know why you're doing it. You're getting the savings and the value, but let us come in as the noise eliminators or let direct contracting come in as the noise eliminators on the side to help, you know, blend the plan so that you have RBP and direct contracting.
0: Well, so, I mean, a question from maybe a a completely different point of view, maybe from out in left field, is if you're dealing with freestanding surgical centers, ambulatory care centers, et cetera, have the BUCAs gotten any pushback that you know of from the hospitals? Because these are a lot of their most lucrative surgeries. These are a lot of their, they call them one and dones.
2: Yeah. So with that, what I would say is at, at the current time, no. And maybe it's because of the volume nationally at this point. Direct contracting across the board is still a relatively new concept for everybody. But like most things, what you see is you see the, the small early adopters, the people that are kind of on the cutting edge, willing to try some things, make mistakes. And then if you see success there, the bigger ones come along. So in our model or any direct contracting model, everybody kind of starts with working with outpatient centers. Then you see a trickle over to the regional hospitals. And then eventually where I see this is kind of a level set where it doesn't matter. We are able to work with hospitals as well, large hospitals. But You have to also be careful in this with these types of procedures. You know, a patient has a five times greater risk of walking into a hospital versus an ASC. It's just a fact. Sick people go to hospitals. People that need surgery should be in surgery centers. So a big part that I've said about healthcare for the longest thing is we need to stop or hospitals need to stop doing things they don't specialize in. If you do not specialize in doing certain procedures, you should be sending them elsewhere. And these types of procedures are a great case in point. Why take a patient that is a healthy middle-aged male or female, doesn't matter, that just needs a knee replacement? Why are you doing that in a hospital setting with a greater risk of infection to the patient where that case can be placed in an outpatient setting, higher nurse-to-patient ratio, you know, less chance of infection there, patient recovers, quickly goes home? So I think what all this leads in is to the greater good of kind of solving our healthcare crisis in this country is starting to take steps not only on the transparency front, but also stay stay in your lane, stay in the business that you're good at. Let the providers that are good at it that can compete on price. Because that, that's the biggest thing we've seen with direct contracting as well is, you know, we all know being in the healthcare field that usually lower price is higher quality. The average American citizen doesn't understand that. And something that we've kind of pull in when we do direct contracting and patients are making decisions, we never share price with the patient. We want them strictly making decision on quality and who they feel the most comfortable with. So that being said, you know, we see time and time again, the highest quality providers are the lowest price because they know their metrics. They do so many knees, hips, spinal fusions, colonoscopies, what have you, that they know How long that surgeon should be in the room, how many units of anesthesia, how many nurses to that patient. So where I was going with that, and I apologize because I went down a rabbit trail there, is really, it goes into this greater conversation around transparency in healthcare, which then ultimately drives the quality aspect as well.
1: And now, a word from our sponsor. It's a fact. Salespeople and organizations lose opportunities because they don't clearly communicate their value. In today's market, your story is your message. It should be crystal clear, perfectly arranged, and precisely targeted to attract the clients you want. As a certified story brand guide, we use the exclusive SB7 process to create that story and the websites and collateral that deliver it. If your message isn't cutting through the noise, we can help. Visit us at shiftshapersstrategies.com to learn how we can help you find, clarify, and deliver a message that wins clients, crushes sales goals, and builds your practice. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. So learn more and schedule that call today at ShiftShaperStrategies.com. That's ShiftShaperstrategies.com. And now, back to our discussion.
0: So a question, I mean, how much of the renewed interest in this has been driven in in your estimation by the renewed interest in a lot of, by a lot of brokers in partially self-funded and self-funded plans?
2: I've seen a, a drastic increase. I mean, just year over year, the interest in it. I think, you know, a lot of brokers are good people. A lot of brokers are trying to come to their clients and be that solution for their, all their healthcare pain points. And, If you even look at healthcare in the last 10 years, you go back to healthcare reform, there's been a lot of stagnant points where it's like, we don't know what's coming next. We have all these additional fees and things maybe associated with healthcare reform. So people have kind of scrambled for solutions. And I even said this when healthcare reform happened, I said, you know, everybody's running around the office. Oh my gosh, we're going to be out of a job. This is terrible. I said, there's opportunity here this is an opportunity for the private sector to redo this and redo it the right way before the government steps in and says, you don't know what you're doing. We're going to do it for you. So that's really where I've seen, you know, and I think too, the education of the broker community in self-funded plans has grown tremendously, I would say in the last four years. So we're seeing more people that, Now they're armed, they understand a self-funded plan, but now they also know what solutions to ask for. And direct contracting is becoming, you know, a very common conversation for a lot of people.
0: Well, I mean, it's all at the end of the day in a partially self-funded plan, it's all about data, which is actionable and allows you to make intelligent decisions. So let's talk about the result of those intelligent decisions. What's the delta? What does the pricing differential look like if you set up a direct payment plan or direct contracting plan with a freestanding surgical center, regardless of the type of procedure they're doing.
2: Yeah. So what you're looking at on any on any well-designed direct contracting basis is a 30 to 80% savings comparative to, you know, national BUCA reimbursements. Again, I want to be clear, this this isn't a knock in any way to the BUCAS or anything like that. It's just strictly that they're designed to tackle a lot of things and deal with a lot of things. Every provider out there that takes on patients is participating with a major BUCA. So that's great. And it, it creates great access. However, it doesn't give me a business opportunity from the guy down the road. We all participate with the same insurances. Where direct contracting comes in as the level set is when you talk to these providers, healthcare is regional. So when you're able to talk to a, a provider that is in York, Pennsylvania, let's say, and say, hey, I have ABC Manufacturing. They have 700 employees, maybe around 1,700 with dependents. We would like to send every employee to you for your subspecialties. Are you on board? That immediately triggers their business sense and gets them excited that, wait, this is another line of revenue for us. And fast pay, putting bodies in beds we never had before, taking it out of maybe the large hospital monopolies in the area you know we're not in the collections business. You know the good direct contracting model. The patient doesn't have any out of pocket, so we're not chasing people for these high deductibles anymore. So you know, short answer to your question, David, you good direct contracting model. You're looking for that 30 to 80 percent savings on any given procedure, but ultimately you're really pulling on that regional healthcare approach and a new line of revenue for the centers. That's what gets them to act.
0: Well, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense if you look at. Primary care physicians, a lot of them are leaving the insurance world and going into direct primary care practices where they just don't have to deal with any of that, that nonsense. But if you're a surgeon, that's not a model that works for you. So this is much more of a model that works for you and kind of at least for part of your practice, maybe gets you away from that, that dealing with the insurance companies and gets you paid faster. So let's go back. We're talking about a, a 30 to 80% savings. How do the rates get set? Is that part of reference-based pricing or are you using a reference model when you go to XYZ doc, let's say it's an orthopedist and say, you know, for a knee, we're going to pay you X? And is this always bundled pricing?
2: No, fantastic question. And and this is where people can get in trouble if they don't know the right way to do this or they just kind of bull like bull their way through it. Trust me, you're talking to somebody that's wearing a lot of scars. And I'll tell you, David, the funny part about this. This whole model for us started with one surgical center in our backyard and where it piqued my interest was, I said, my first question to the surgery, had a surgery at that center. So what does your pricing look like? Nobody's going to go out of their way if you're a touch lesser than what they're going to get through insurance anyhow. You know, if you're saving a couple grand on a knee, a hip, they're not going to go out of their way. I'm sorry to tell you. He slides me the list and my eyes go right to a knee and a hip replacement and I'm seeing a knee for 22.5, a hip for 23.4. And I know this is facility, physician, anesthesia, DME, hardware, pre and post-op visits, everything with that event. And I know these are $50,000, $60,000 procedures. I've seen them on self-funded plans. So that's what created the interest for me to get into this business. But then where I turned my attention to was, how do you do this across all sorts of procedures? You know, we cover over 400 different things, a lot of drug contractings do, drug contracting models do. But what does that mean for hernias, colonoscopies, all these things? So I spent the better part of probably three years, we audited about $1.2 billion worth of claims data, real live claims data, and I built a database. And I threw out the outer liars. You know, we saw audits a lot of times, hip replacements, $200,000, some lumbar spinal fusions for quarter million. Those outliers I've removed from the data because they skew things. So I just built these averages. And the amazing part about the networks is they didn't vary much nationally. There's certain markets that are higher than others, like the state of Indiana. Most people don't know the average reimbursement in the state of Indiana is 358% of Medicare. And it just happened, it's a legacy contract thing. So I built that database and then I worked with a company that had a research grant with CMS. There's only a handful of companies in the country that actually have full research grants on Medicare reimbursement. And I took all all the Medicare reimbursements for our procedures and I took them times 2.4 or 240%, because we know the average BUCA level is 240%. And then I blended those results. So in doing all that work behind the scenes that what that helped create from a direct contracting standpoint is now we have a baseline on where we want our procedures and we know where we're creating that value and we know what that should have cost had it gone through insurance so that work is what culminated and you know it's the things where if you approach a center to direct contract and say hey I have you know David needs a knee replacement I'd like to do it at $20,000 you know, all in, this is what it includes. And they come back and say, hey, look, we looked at this. We need to do it for 24. You know, we use the special hardware or DME. We need to charge a little more. No problem. I don't have an issue there. If the facility, though, comes back and says, we want 37,000, we're going to move on. And I think that's what a lot of people need to understand with a good direct contracting model is you, you have to be willing to be flexible. And if one facility doesn't work with you, no big deal. Move on to another one. Because if you have the business, the providers will come.
0: So we've got a few minutes left and I'm I'm interested in, in maybe looking at some metrics or stats or even just impressions from the patient side of the equation. We touched on this earlier, but we didn't really delve into it. What do things like post-surgical infection rates look like versus a multi-specialty hospital? Also, what do readmits look like? And the last metric, I think, is is overall patient satisfaction.
2: Yeah. And with a few minutes, I'm going to flip this around on you, David, and go with the patient satisfaction to begin with. Because probably one of the things that gets me the most excited to get out of bed with this is I've always believed in helping people and trying to find a way to do that. But I cannot tell you the amount of pride that I take in hearing the stories from our nursing team with patients crying on the phone, that they could not afford to have procedures or they put them off for years because they can't afford their deductibles. And being able to come in, solve that problem, get patients the care they need, it's so rewarding from that aspect of it. But, you know, on the flip side of this, you have, you know, the entire continuum of care and you know the best direct contracting models, they typically have a nurse concierge that guides a patient. So a patient now feels like they have somebody that has their back, can answer questions, talk to the facility directly. The aftercare. So a good direct contracting model is you're dealing with clean patients. So you have to have good nurses that know how to vet a patient on the front end. And also most surgery centers are very good at this. If a patient's a level four They're not going to have surgery on them in the outpatient setting. They're going to send them to a hospital. So, when you're dealing with a lot of clean patients, they just need surgery. They need to go home. There's not a lot of high risk. You know, in over 15,000 procedures, we've had one issue, and it was because the, the patient went in for a simple colonoscopy and EGD. He told the anesthesiologist he was allergic to the wrong part of anesthesia because he was misdiagnosed on a prior surgery. So it had a silver lining where we ended up getting him tested, found out the right thing. Now that's on his medical records forever, in case, God forbid, he's ever rushed in for emergency surgery. So in the efficiency at which surgeries can happen nowadays... I mean, the advancements in the way that these surgeons operate and the cleanliness of the facilities, you just don't have issues. So that's the nice part about it. And early on, we couldn't answer to that real well. But after you start to see the data, you, you know, run over 15,000 cases, you really get a good feel.
0: Well, and that's a great place to end our conversation for today. TJ, thanks so much for coming back on the program. TJ's president of Benefit Design Specialist. Will You'll be able to link to him if you want to talk to him from his logo in the show notes when this episode runs. Thanks so much for sharing your expertise with the audience.
2: Absolutely, David. Happy to be back and always happy to share my opinions whenever you'll have me. So,
0: <laughs> Thank you much. Take care. Thank you.
1: The Shift Shapers Podcast is a production of Shift Shaper Strategies and may not be reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without our express written permission. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.